Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the songs of truth that we have already sung. I pray for every single person in this room that the word of God would be declared in truth and sink down deep into their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would take the word and that he would produce good fruit that is lasting. We pray this morning that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not that you would make us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Glad that you are here this morning. Uh, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to bring the Word of God to you. If you don't have a Bible, um, uh, go ahead and ask me or somebody was up on the stage, and we'd love to get you a Bible so you can have your own. If you have a Bible, make sure that it's open to our text this morning so that you can follow along in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. As the author of Hebrews is writing this letter, this portion of his letter, he is writing it to the small, fledgling church who has not yet faced persecution, but is about to. Persecution is looming on the horizon. No one has been martyred for their faith yet, but fear of death had its cold fingers around many hearts in the early church. And this fear was slowly rising up before them. And at any moment, just one word from the authorities that were at that time, and any one of them could be taken off to jail and to death for their faith. It had not come yet, but it was coming. And this fear of death was immobilizing. It's like staring in the face of a deadly cobra coiled up in front of you, knowing that it's about to strike at any moment. Some in the early church were experiencing this paralysis or this bondage to the fear of death. And to those believers and to us today, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is able to help. Jesus 
is able to help. God with us is something that we will say a lot during this Christmas season. Emmanuel, God with us. The Christian church, the early Christian church and the church today says to each other, God be with you. God be with you. The author here is saying Jesus can help you as you face this fear of death. We're going to walk through this phrase this morning. We'll walk through this phrase this morning. Jesus is able to help those who are in slavery to the fear of death because he destroyed the power of death by becoming a merciful and faithful high priest. I'll say it again. Jesus is able to help those who are in slavery to the fear of death because he destroyed the power of death by becoming a merciful and a faithful high priest. Number one, Jesus is able to help. And so what it says here, we're going to kind of work in and out of our text this morning, jumping up and down in the, the passage. For he became a man. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to help. That is what it says. But what does it mean that Jesus is able to help? Who does he help? And what is the help that he gives? Many people will sing during this Christmas season songs about the Christ child of whom they know nothing about truly. They will sing songs about his salvation, about what he has come to do, but truly they have no idea who he is, why he has come, why we need help, and what the help he comes to give. Many people in our culture today treat Jesus as an, just an add-on to their life, like a, a lucky rabbit's foot or this cosmic slot machine. If I just put in good and do my best, Jesus is kind of the, um, the gatekeeper of karma. So if I pay it forward and do my best, then Jesus is there to kind of help me. He's happy if I pay it forward, and he will give me an easier life if I just try hard and do my best, and he will gladly welcome me into heaven one day if I'm a good person and give me a mansion where I can live forever. And this is a thought that is rampant in our culture today, and in many churches, this is what is preached. This is why churches orient everything around consumerism, easy believism, coolness, or comfort. Today, when people are searching for a church, they put more emphasis on a church's cool factor and its comfort and its conformity to their life than they do a church's conformity to the Word of God. Just let me kind of go about my life as easily as I can. And yes, I would like Jesus to be a part of my life because I know that he said he will bless me if I acknowledge him, right? And I certainly don't want to go to hell one day and would rather go to heaven, so yeah, I'm a Christian. What is this help, though, that Jesus brings? Churches misunderstand the fullness of Christ, the fullness of who he is. So they name their churches things like Refuge Church, which is not bad, because is Jesus a refuge? Yes, he is. But listen, Jesus Christ 
is only a refuge for those who are in him. Jesus Christ is a refuge for those who truly call him Lord. Jesus is a refuge for those who belong to him. Many people are happy to accept Jesus as a helper, but that's the extent of the relationship. Be there for me, Jesus, when I need you, but do not expect much in return. So we sing songs sometimes in churches that are focused more on me than they are about God and his glory and his righteousness. In my life as a pastor and in my life in general, I've heard many, many, many people quote classic scriptures, classic help scriptures like this. If God is for me, who can be against me? Or the Lord is with me, what can man do to me? Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or all things work together for good. And yet when you observe their life and their conduct, it does not look like Jesus is helping them one bit. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says Jesus is able to help? Who does he help? Why do they need help? And what is the help that he gives? That's really what we're going to tackle today. Who does he help? Why do they need help? And what is the help that he gives? Jesus is able to help. Okay. But why do we need help and who does he help? Well, in general, he helps mankind. He has come to set the captives free. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why people who aren't Christians even acknowledge it as well, because, well, this tradition shows that Jesus came to help mankind in his sorry plight. He does not help angels, it's clear. He helps people, the offspring of Abraham, specifically people in slavery and those who are suffering temptation. We'll see those two different people here in our passage today. Those who are in slavery and those who are suffering temptation. Why do we need help? We have a need of help, friends, because we have this one big problem. Now, in the day in which we live, uh, that suppresses the truth, a day in which people are rejecting anything except their own truth, a truth that is based on a person's own personal perspective, feelings, opinions, and preferences. Live your truth, we hear people say. That's the new mantra of the world we live in. Truth is what you feel inside, so you can be whatever you want to be. As long as you feel it inside, then you should be it. Don't tell us there is something such as objective truth. What is the truth? Well, people have always disagreed on the definitions of truth since the beginning of time, but today it seems that there is so much more insanity like ever before on disagreeing what the truth is. But this one specific thing all humanity can agree on is truth. This is one thing that we all have in common. Regardless of what you believe, this one thing we must all do. One day, we will all die. We will all die. People have been doing it for some time now, and it's not gone out of style yet. 
right? Nobody's canceled death yet. Don't Jesus juke me on that and be like, well, Jesus did. All right, we'll get there later. Nobody has identified yet as not dying. No one gets out alive. We've all agreed on this one point. Man, woman, rich, poor, king, peasant, wise, foolish, strong, weak, young, old, death is the great equalizer. Death is inevitable. One commentator says, indeed, the fear of death is endemic to the whole human race. It keeps dogging man's steps, whether he ignores it or turns and attempts to stare it down. Death is there. Second Samuel 14, 14 speaks of death as being mankind's big problem. We must all die. We are all like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 3 goes forth and says, rich, poor, young, old, it doesn't matter. After all the riches, after all the experiences, whatever your circumstances, it says at the end, therefore, at the end, we all must die. We all go the way of the dead. Regardless of your beliefs, you must think about death. Spurgeon said, if you do not think of death, yet it will think of you. It will think of you. It has not forgotten you. It will think of you. Death is the problem that humanity faces, specifically the fear of death. Specifically the fear of death. You know, some just think that death is, well, it's just a long way off, and I'm just too busy to be bothered with it. And people in general don't like the thought of death, but Americans seem to have a really uh, special aversion to it, to dealing with death. That's why we make ourselves very busy, running around here and there, no time for death, thinking that we are invincible. Our culture is obsessed with health, physical fitness, self-preservation, material wealth, building a career, and comfort, so we just don't have time to think about death. This is one of the reasons that we like to put our dead away in, uh, in, in closed areas with big gates so that um, we don't have to think about death. Versus you go to other cultures like Japan and you see that there are gravestones and there are tombs everywhere. Death is something that is very present and very uh, real to them. If you go visit the, um, the Woodlawn Cemetery downtown in Dayton, close to UD, it's an arbor cemetery, which is uh, beautiful, huge trees, and these cemeteries were created um, a long time ago in order that you could go and take picnics there. Like, why would you want to take a picnic and go and you know, sit in the, amongst the gravestones? Well, death was something that was much more familiar to generations past. People didn't live as long as they do now. Babies died. There's a whole section in that cemetery of babies who died of a fever in Dayton in the 1800s. We like to put our dead away and not think about it. Consequently, this is why churches had graveyards traditionally outside of their buildings because, well, Christians have the answer to death. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So you might not think about death, but it will think of you. Some may say that they do not fear death. But as we see here in the scripture, the only ones who can say that they do not fear death are those who are in Christ. And we'll see that later on in our sermon today. So if you are not in Christ, if you have not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, then, friend, you should be afraid. You know, I've been around the church a long time. I grew up in a pastor's home. My my dad's been a pastor at the same place for 40-plus years. So I've seen a lot of church life. One thing that you hear people often say is whether well, just is that hellfire brimstone preaching at that place, or we like to give generations in the past hard time for their hellfire brimstone preaching. But we've lost the potency of the gospel in evangelism that warns people to be fearful of the wrath to come. Friend, fear of death And separation from God and eternal punishment is a very fine motivator to look to Jesus. And if you are not in Christ, you should be very afraid. What is it like? That's in all the zombie movies or or whatever. Like when they're like, "You should be afraid," or or "Are you afraid?" Yes, I'm afraid. You're not afraid enough, right? Because there's something big and worse and bad around the corner. And, And and I don't want to make light of that, but hear me. If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ. You say, well, I'm not afraid of death. Friend, you should be. Because the wrath of God is coming against those who have not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. People avoid the thought of death. Why? Well, one, we don't like to think about death very much. And that's a natural thing, to not think about death very much. Because death is the effects of a fallen world, a shadow of what could have been. Death doesn't feel right because it was never supposed to be this way. Humanity was not supposed to be subject to death. That's why it doesn't feel natural. But ultimately, death, when we think about it, and the reason people don't want to think about it, is because it reminds us of the reason why we have death. People don't like to think about death ultimately because of its cause. Because to think about death is to think about sin. To think about death is to think about the thing that causes death. The scripture says that mankind is totally depraved. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. They rebelled against God. Therefore, death entered the world through one man's sin. And all of us have fallen under that curse because so death spread to all because all have sinned. On your own time, go read Romans 1, 18 through 32 and see how we suppress the truth. And don't lay the blame for your sin at God's feet. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Satan tempts you with what you already want. When Eve saw that the fruit was desirable, he tempted her with what something that she desired and wanted. 
when desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. And the most sobering, I think, of all scriptures that speak of death, in its shortness, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. I talk to our kids about this a lot in our home. Helping them to understand that sin begets more sin, begets more sin, and leads to death and destruction. This is why, friends, we cannot take God's righteous requirement out of the gospel message. We must warn people of the wrath to come. It is not loving or it does not promote human flourishing to tell people that they are chill with God. As long as they do a good job, come to church, and claim to be a Christian, God is happy with you. This is not good news. But because we love God, therefore we love people, we will tell people that they must be right with God or death and its wages and its punishment is coming for them. Maybe you don't think you're as bad as all that. Well, okay, you said that there's death because of sin, but I'm a pretty good person. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, let me just remind you, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Do you get it? Do I need to read those again? Mankind has this big problem. We are totally depraved, lost, deserving of God's righteous wrath. Deserving of wrath. Fearful of death because we deserve, we must pay the penalty for our sins. Let's let Calvin just drive home the point and then we'll move on. John Calvin says about our depravity and about our big problem of sin that leads to death. Let it stand, therefore, as an indubitable truth, which no engine can shake, that mankind is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything, but that is wicked, distorted, foul, impure, iniquitous, that his heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it cannot breathe out but corruption and rottenness. That if some men occasionally make a show of goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit, their soul inwardly bound with the fetters of wickedness. Death is because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, in light of the offense before a holy God, our response should be to turn from our sin and repentance to a holy God to hate our sin and to live holy. But here's another problem. You cannot save yourself. So you're completely condemned, and you can't save yourself. You're like, I should. Really encouraging first Advent sermon, Jeff. Thank you very much. Go have a good day, right? Peace be with you. No. 
the righteous wrath of God that we deserve is coming for us, and we can do nothing in ourselves to save ourselves. We stand before God guilty and cannot do anything to save ourselves. And the good news of the gospel, friends, is this. That you have fallen in sin because of the curse of our first father, Adam. And you are unable to save yourself. This is where the good news of the gospel starts. And I implore you to embrace that. I implore you and beg of you to embrace the fact that you are guilty and you cannot save yourself. Because if you do, you are in a good place to understand the gospel. John Duncan says, sin is the handle by which I grasp Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world, Paul says, to save pretty good people who have done pretty good on their own, and um, he's just going to help them along. Is that what it says? Jesus Christ came into the world to save what? Sinners. So if you are not a sinner, Christ cannot help you. You must be a sinner in order for him to help. Jesus himself, when he came to earth and preached, said, I have come to call sinners to repentance. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The sick. How has Jesus then helped us in our sorry state? Okay, just clarify. We are under the curse of sin, totally depraved, unable to help ourselves then. Can't save myself. I can, I can go to church my whole life. I can try my best my whole life. I can do a lot of moral acts my whole life. But that self-justification, as we've already learned in Hebrews, walking through our series, cannot save us. You cannot save yourself. In fact, the scripture says that all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. All of your best efforts fall completely short. So what has Jesus done for us in our sorry state? Because of our, because of our sin, and because of the wages of sin is death, we are in fear to the power of death. So what did Jesus do? Let's walk through our statement. Because Jesus came to destroy the power of death. Verse 14b, 15. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, you're a human being, you're a sinner, depraved, unable to help yourself, rightly deserving the wrath of God. Death is the penalty for your sin, and separation from God eternally is the penalty for your sin. Therefore, we should be afraid. We are in the fear and the bondage of the power of death. So what does Jesus do to help us? Jesus comes and helps us in our starry state by destroying the one who has the power of death. Jesus comes and helps us by destroying the one who has the power of death. Well, who is that? Look at your Bibles. It's the devil. The devil has the power of death. Why does the devil have the power of death? And also you might say, how could someone coming and dying, how could someone coming and dying defeat death? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why does it not talk about 
something further, or the resurrection yet. We'll get there. But why does it just say he comes and he defeats the one who has the power of death? And he does that by dying. How can that even work? Well, I'll give you a, a, our one big theological word, propitiation. Jesus makes propitiation. We see this mentioned in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? I'm glad you asked. It's an atoning sacrifice that puts away sin and satisfies God's righteous wrath. Write that down. Propitiation is an atoning sacrifice that puts away sin and satisfies God's righteous wrath. That's what we see taking place, a picture, a shadow of this in the Old Testament sacrificial system. A sacrifice must be made for the forgiveness of sins. God saying, we will kill an animal. We will transfer symbolically your sins to this animal. So how does Jesus defeat death by dying? Well, he was our propitiation. He took away the thing that gave the devil the power, excuse me, of death. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Again, if you have a Bible, you need to turn over there and check this out. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Give you a second to get there. In your Bible or your smartphone. Everybody's got smartphones. That's why I don't hear any pages flipping. Everybody's tapping. That's cool. So how does Jesus defeat death by dying? He took away the thing that gave the devil the power of death. So Colossians 2, 13 through 15 helps us with this. And you, this is talking about all of you, it's talking about humankind. Paul is specifically talking to a church saying you used to be this way. Remember your depravity. Remember before you were in Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to his cross, and he has disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So what it's saying here is this, and this is how Jesus beats death by death. This is how he takes the power away from the one who has the power of death. Jesus took the punishment that we rightly deserved. Well, why did we deserve it? We've already said this. Because the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So, in other words, Satan has this power. He is the accuser, the Bible says, of the brethren. It says that he stands day and night accusing us. Satan has a big, giant folder full of all your sins and your name written and read on the outside. And he stands before God every day saying, Guilty, 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 guilty. And he's right. He's right. Because of our sinfulness, because of our fallenness, because of our depravity. He stands before God accusing. This is the power that he has, the great accuser. And since the wages of sin is death, this, this is what gives death its power, its sting. First Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. And since we have broken God's law, Satan stands before God with the big folder saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's your death penalty. It's my death penalty. And the only door open to us is the door of hell. 
That's the only one open to us. But Jesus helps us. He destroyed the power of death. Look, Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us. Here it is. This is how he disarms the evil one. This is how he breaks the power of sin. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In his death, Jesus took the penalty for your sin. This is why the song says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus took away the devil's only weapon. He grabs the big folder out of the hands of the accuser, he sprinkles his own blood upon it and he nails it to his cross and he said, it is done, it is finished. And he takes away the power that Satan has over us. Therefore, those who are in Christ do not have to fear death. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil has no real power. He's like that, like the, the, the wizard Saruman in the Lord of the Rings after the, the trees had come and, and he has no more power. What does Gandalf say? He has no more power, right? He's just now, he's just now a cheap conjurer of tricks, right? So the, so the devil do, does still have some power to cause harm and temptation and we'll see that's what he does. It's just to wreak havoc. But he's a toothless lion. He's been defanged of all his venom. He has no more, death has no more sting because Jesus took the penalty and put it upon himself. So therefore he snatched out of the hand the giant folder full of all your sins and nailed it to his cross. This is why we can say with joy in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's how Jesus beat death by dying, took away the power of the evil. And we could stop there because that's really encouraging. We could stop there and say, oh, what a victory he has wrought, but let's go further. All right, let's be more encouraged, right? So how did this actually happen? It's a little more intricate. It's a little more detailed than just Jesus dying on the cross for us, okay? So let's go a little bit further here. In defeating death, Jesus, how did he do this? He had to become a merciful and faithful high priest. So, verse 17. Therefore, of our text in Hebrews too. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became. He had to become. So Jesus defeated death. Amen. He defeats the evil one. He takes away the power. But how does he actually do that? And how does, how does that help me now go forward and live in newness of life? How does that not... How does that help me not fear death anymore? Because I'm still kind of concerned about that. Maybe you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're still kind of concerned that maybe there's some wrath left over for you. I'm just, I just know it's kind of looming out there somewhere. Like my, my youngest, uh, Abram, he's, he, all the time, he's always like, I come in the room and he says, you spank me? 
I was like, what did you do? And he's kind of just like standoff for a minute. And because and he, he's just kind of always assuming, you know, that uh, dad is going to give him a spanking or something. And it's because he's usually doing something bad all the time. All right. Like we are. So that's kind of maybe how your interaction with God is. Like the preacher gets up and he's like, God spanked me today? Like I wake up, is God mad at me today? You don't know. And you live in fear. And the power of that. Ultimately, you're like, yeah, I know that if you accept Jesus as Savior, that it means in John you know, 3.16, he will give eternal life to us. I, I get that, but I'm just not sure. And so it, it stifles us in our, in our living. It, we can't live with, with holiness and joy. I'm not quite sure. There's still wrath left for me. And those of you who aren't believers, like, man, I, okay, that's nice that Jesus died for me, but there's got to be a little bit more something to it than that. Let's go further and see how this took place. So he, he had to become. So he breaks the power of sin, but he had to become. This is why we say, Merry Christmas, friends, because God became a man. That, that's, that's incredible. That blows our mind. When, when the uh, angel comes and says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. Now, if you're an Old Testament um, Israelite, and that's the tradition that's been passed down to you. God coming and being with you wasn't always good news. Because sometimes God came into the camp and he wiped out a whole bunch of people. Like, he you know, struck down 6,000 with the plague. And then snakes came and got these people. And then the ground opened and got these people. Like, so the presence of God coming down in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, that was a scary thing. Because God is holy. We've already talked about the big problem. We can't live without God because we've been created for him, and we can't live with God because of our sinfulness, because he's holy. So all of a sudden now, God's coming down to be with us. We're like, that's weird. Okay, I think that's comforting, but the presence of God sometimes feels very scary. God becomes a man, and in so doing, he's able to go to the cross and defeat death. But he has to become a man. Why? To be like the children, to be like us, because God cannot die. But Jesus, the God-man, can. God cannot pay for the penalties of sin. He cannot be the sacrifice. But Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate one, can. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He put on human flesh. Philippians 2, he left heaven, he puts on human flesh, and he comes to be with us. There's a song that we sing around Christmas. I'm sure we'll sing it soon. Oh, the mercies our God has shown to those who sit in death's shadows. Sun on high, pierced the night, born was the cornerstone. Oh, the freedom our Savior won. The yoke of sin has been broken. Once a slave, now by grace, no more condemnation. Unto us, a son is given. Unto us, a child is born. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Taken on flesh, conquered death's sting. Shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Merry Christmas. God became a man to dwell among us, but not simply to come and to teach good things and be a good moral teacher. If you only accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, who came and did some nice things, then you miss the whole point for why Jesus came. Jesus not, did not come to just teach nice things, good morals, heal some people, feed some people, and then down a cross. No, he came to die. His mission from the beginning of time 
before the beginning of time, in eternity past, was to come and to pay the atonement for our sins, to be the propitiation for us. This was his mission. And it is so significant that we celebrate this Christmas, friends, the importance of God becoming a man. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, so that he might come and die for the sins of man. And by being found in human form, Philippians 2 goes on to say, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. God has to become a man in order to deal with our sorry state, in order to break the power of sin. So in the incarnation, we see two things that Jesus is that are required to make propitiation to defeat death and to help us, and this is ultimately how he helps us. In the incarnation, Jesus becoming man so he can break the power of death, he has to become two things. Number one, Jesus is, must become the merciful high priest. What is this saying to us? We've already said, Jesus must become human. Jesus must become human to suffer what humans suffer. And this is where we see the solidarity of Jesus. Not simply that he has to become flesh and blood in order to go and pray propitiation for our sins because God cannot die, but the God-man can. But also that he might suffer all that we suffer. In this we see the solidarity of Jesus. Jesus is sympathetic and merciful. He's a merciful high priest who knows human spiritual infirmities since he has experienced the full range of temptations and he has atoned for transgression. He is a merciful high priest to us because he knows the suffering that we face through temptations. He knows pain. He knows death. Jesus was fully man. I don't have time to go into the intricacies of the incarnation, and there is some mystery in there that we have to accept by faith. But Jesus understands. He knows our struggles, our trials, our temptations. This is why we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. Have you trials or temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Why? Because he is a merciful high priest. He knows. He understands. He understands physical human infirmity, and he understands the temptations that we face. He understood in his mercy that people were lost in their deadness and in their sin, and in mercy he comes and gives us what we do not deserve. He understands those who are in Christ who suffer temptation as they try to live holy. He understands because he himself was made like us. We see a picture of this sympathetic and merciful high priest in the shortest verse in all the Bible in John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. You're familiar with this verse? You're familiar with the story? Familiar with the story of Lazarus? Jesus' friend. He had spent much time in the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And his friend Lazarus is sick and he dies for God's glory, for God's purpose. And Jesus comes and he goes to the tomb and he stands before the tomb and the scripture says, Jesus wept. We see a beautiful picture here of the God-man. Jesus weeps for two reasons. One, he weeps because he's a human being. He sees the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. He sees his friends weeping. His friend is dead, and therefore he weeps as a man. He knows what it's like 
to cry. He knows what it's like to lose family. He knows what it's like to lose friends. He feels the pain. And he also, though, weeps as the creator of the universe. In Hebrews 1, what does it say? That he was there in the beginning. He created it all. And so Jesus weeps as a man before the tomb of his friend and sees all the pain. And he weeps as the creator of the universe who is standing there in the presence of this death saying it should have never been this way. And he's angered by sin. And he knows he has to do something about it. We see the solidarity of Jesus with us. He knows our pain. Indeed, he experienced, friends, more suffering and temptation than we will ever face. Adam is tempted in the midst of plenty. Adam is tempted in the midst of community. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by himself. Everyone abandons him in the end, and yet he is faithful. He has suffered beyond anything you can imagine. In his death, he has suffered physical pain among anything you can ever imagine. He can sympathize. He understands. He knows. He experiences these things. He can truly empathize with us. I can look at my dear wife who has given me two beautiful children, and there's two in heaven, but we'll see one day. And I can look at, I mean, standing in the, in the, in the you know, the, it's time to go have the baby, and I'm more nervous than her, and I got all the stuff ready in the backpacks, and she's just walking in there like chill, and I'm just running around, okay, breathe, breathe, you know, and she's like, you're the one who needs to breathe, you know. <laughs> And I'm over there on that little uncomfortable couch, just like, I'm so worn out, I'm so tired, you know. And the nurses are just patting you on the head. Adam's raising his hand because he knows what I'm talking about. That's so exhausting, man. Having a baby is so hard, right? Right, Adam? Man. And I can, I can sympathize with my wife and I can say, babe, like, I, I was there with you. I held your hand. You squeezed it really, really hard, you know. <laughs> and that really hurt, you know. Like, Doc, my wife squeezed my hand. Can you look at it? I, I, I understand, I, I can, but I don't understand childbirth the way you ladies do. You can look at my wife and you can say, I know exactly how it felt. That's the type of connection and empathy that Jesus Christ shows us. He knows exactly, not just he kind of knows, he knows exactly how you feel. He knows the pain that you're facing. He knows the sorrow that you're facing. He knows the loneliness that you're facing. He's been betrayed People ran away, people that boasted that they would be with him forever, now gone, and denying his name at that. His family not believing in him. He suffers temptation from Satan himself. Jesus Christ suffers temptation of hunger. He suffers temptation to abandon his father's will. He suffers the temptation to take his own life. He knows the temptations that you face. He can sympathize. Hebrews 5 gives us an example of this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's talking about the old uh, sacrificial system, the high priest. It says that the high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer for himself sacrifices before he does for the people. So there's a little picture, an example. The high priest goes in to offer the sacrifices for the people on their behalf. He knows their weakness because he himself is human and weak. But here's the distinction. This earthly high priest has to offer sacrifices for himself because he is sinful. 
He's human. He's sinful. Jesus, the great high priest, offers sacrifices for us. He can sympathize with us. He is a merciful high priest. He understands the wayward. He understands the brokenhearted because he is fully human. He understands it. Yet, unlike this priest, the great high priest, Jesus, is without sin. We'll get to the the passage in Hebrews eventually in our series where it says he does not have to offer for himself sacrifices. No, no, he doesn't have to because he is perfect. He's tempted in every way. He learned obedience through suffering. He faces suffering through temptation, like I've already said, that we will never face. Jesus had a human body. He felt hunger. He felt pain. He felt loneliness. All these things he felt. Jesus understands the temptation, the, 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 the sorrow that we feel. He understands the temptation that we face as well. He sympathizes with us who are his own when we are being tempted to walk in unrighteousness. When we are afraid of the fear of death, like the early church that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And they're like, I don't know if we can do this. Persecution is coming. I'm afraid. And Jesus comes to them and reminds them, you're being tempted to fear the power of death. I've overcome that. I've destroyed the power of death. And also, I understand the temptation you're facing because I myself faced it. In the garden, he cries out that this could be some other way. Let this cut pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. So when it says that Jesus has made like us, pay attention here um, so that we don't fall asleep, take a drink of coffee. We're going to walk in a little bit more into the intricacies of the incarnation to help us walk in newness of life and be encouraged that Jesus helps us. When it says that Jesus was made like us, some have taken this to mean that Jesus was not eternally God. That Jesus was created. And of course, that is a heretical belief. Jesus was not created. No, he is the second member of the Trinity who has always been, is, and always will be. Amen? Okay, you're awake. Good. Cool. The author of Hebrews has already established this. He's already gone to great lengths to show us that Jesus is eternally God. In addition, others have taken the phrase that he was made like us, uh, or that, uh, that he was made like us in order to say that he is not, um, that he is not, that he is only human and not fully God, and that he cannot sympathize with us in any way. So on one hand, they're saying he's, he's, he's been created, he's not fully God, uh, he's just like the greatest creation of all God's creations, a little bit higher than the angels, but no, he is the second member of the Trinity forever. He is God. Others have said, well, he wasn't really fully human. He just kind of understood us in a specific, a little extra specific way, not like, like, like fully, no, no, he does. It didn't just seem or appear to be human, he was fully God and fully human. And I see in Creed and AD 325 dealt with these heretical matters. They condemned Arianism as a heresy and they affirmed that Christ was full in his deity and full in his humanity. Let me read to you what they said. And I see in Creed, describing the Lord Jesus Christ, they say this, he is God of gods, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And he was made man. That's how they describe it. The Westminster Confession, the sort of catechism, speaks of the eternal Son of God as becoming man with these words. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, 
being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. So we have to say, though, so if Jesus knows our temptations, though, does that, how is that possible? Was it possible for Jesus to sin? Well, if you mean that it's possible for him to sin, the word possible is really important here. Is it possible for Jesus to sin? And if you mean by possible that Jesus had a natural ability, a human ability, a capacity to discern temptation and to choose, then the answer would be yes. So he understood these things. He could look and say, this is sin, this is righteousness. He understood that. He had that capacity. It was possible in that sense. If he did not possess these things, then he would not be fully human. Jesus was discerning, thinking, feeling. He knows hunger, pain. He knows sexual arousal. He knows these things. Jesus is human. Jesus had a natural ability, a natural ability to sin, but he did not have a, what we would call a moral ability to sin, meaning this. You and I are tempted with sin. Right? And in Christ, if we've been saved by his power and by his blood, we're able to look at that by the power of his spirit, by the truth of his word, and say, that is sin, that is righteousness, and we have the ability to discern those things. But here's the difference in us and Christ. Jesus had the same ability, a natural ability to sin, but not a moral one. We want to sin, though. We desire to sin. We crave sin. And if you don't think that's true, then just think about all the nasty things you've been thinking about your in-laws that you spent time with during Thanksgiving. Since, whether it was that guy chewed with his mouth open so loud or he was talking about these politics and ah, right, we want bad to happen. See, we want the sin. Jesus, he feels all these things, he knows all these things, but he does not want the sin and what it has to offer. He is tempted in every way without sin because when he looks at it, he discerns, yes, this is righteous, yes, this is sin, and I don't want any of it. What an amazing thing for God to come in human flesh and walk among us with all this temptation and all this pain, all this sorrow, all this suffering, and all this wickedness, and not to desire any of it. He is a faithful, he's a merciful high priest. Number two, he is a faithful high priest. So he has to become these things. He's merciful, he understands, he knows. He was tempted in these things in every way, yet without sin. This makes him fully human, understands us, can die, go to the cross, he has to become human. Number two, though, Jesus is a faithful high priest, a faithful high priest. Jesus must become human in order to live the life we could not live. He suffered temptation and was faithful to the Father's will. He keeps the law that we break. He does the good works that we don't. He lives a perfect, sinless life. Pastor Greg reminds us this every Sunday. He lived the life that we could not live. He lives the life we could not live. He was a faithful high priest. He was merciful. He understands. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, because he was faithful to his Father's will, and he never sinned, even though he was confronted with it. He is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It qualifies him to make propitiation for the sins of the world because of this. And this is why he can help us face these temptations. We face it and are overwhelmed by it, but not him. He has no need, like other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for himself for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once and for all by offering up himself. Offering up himself. 
Remember Colossians as we end here, as Colossians 2, 13 through 15, I know we've talked about a lot of stuff, but Jesus defeats death by dying. He takes away the power of death by taking the big folder of sins that was against us, that was causing us to plummet towards death and destruction. Remember that? So Jesus defeated the devil, the one who has the power of death, and Peter tells us something really important about this. So since Jesus is merciful and faithful, Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2, this is how it was accomplished. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, uh, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan, the foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You was killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. This is how Jesus was able to defeat death ultimately. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, listen, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is a merciful High priest, he understands, he's tempted, he goes through this life, but he is a faithful high priest without sin. Therefore, when he dies, he takes the penalty, but there is more. I sound like a salesman, but there's more. There's more because he takes the penalty. He is buried. Human Jesus is fully dead. But Peter tells us the reason that Jesus did not stay dead was because death could not hold him. Why could death not hold him? Because he did not owe it anything. He, didn't have, he had no wages to have to give it because he lived a perfect life. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin, therefore, he had, sin had no wages he could not pay. So he dies on the cross. He's put in the grave. Human Jesus is dead. And the Spirit of God goes into that tomb and looks at the sinless life of Jesus and says, death, you have no power here because the sting of death is what? Sin. And Jesus has no sin. Therefore, he is resurrected to glory. On the cross, Jesus fully died because he was fully human. Get this. But Jesus had lived a perfect, sinless life. Therefore, death could not hold him. Remember the Old Testament sacrifices? All the blood, all the death never atoning fully, always had to be sacrificed over and over and over. Blood, death, over and over. Another sacrifice. Sin, come back again. Another sacrifice. The constant flowing of blood, the constant flowing of death, the constant sacrifice that can never, Hebrews says, atone for sins. All pointing to this one defining moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's sign that he, a holy God, was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is why we cannot separate the cross from the resurrection, friends. In the resurrection, God looks down and put his, puts his approval on the death of Jesus Christ, saying it was paid in full. The resurrection is how we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It's how we know that it was satisfactory to God. The resurrection is proof that the cross of Jesus was enough. If Jesus had not led a sinless life, then he would not have been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, 
then he would have no help whatsoever to offer you. But he bears the penalty and he defeats death because it cannot hold him. R.C. Sproul says the resurrection is the most natural, believable thing in the scriptures. The resurrection, when you understand the merciful high priest and the faithful high priest, the God-man in his perfection, yet tempted but without sin, the resurrection is the most natural thing in all of the scriptures. He says it this way. Many people believe the resurrection is the ultimate unbelievable miracle. Skeptics say that if there is anything we know for sure, it is that when people die, they stay dead. So among the tenets of Christianity that are popularly regarded as mythological, the resurrection usually tops the list. However, the New Testament looks at it from a completely different perspective. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by death. Death had no claim over Jesus. Death is the punishment that God gives to beings for their sin, but Jesus was sinless. Of course, when we look at our sin, when Jesus took our sin by invitation on the cross, he was filled with our sin, but not his own. His inerrant sinlessness denied death the authority to constrain him. So it was not possible for Jesus, it was not possible for Jesus not to rise again. It was impossible that he would stay dead. How can death hold a sinless human being? It cannot. So Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection. Jesus beats death takes away the power of death and its sting by taking the penalty, and he beats it by coming back to life. Now, here's the application, and we end with this. I promise. Because I'm getting really hot up here in this sweater, and we need to dunk Brandon before the water gets cold. So how does this help me? Let me give you some work glove application here, some work glove theology. Jesus is yours if you are his. I just want to restate this help. It is offered to human beings who are in fear of death. But it is only given to you if you bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and put faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. So this help is yours. But the help for holiness, the help of propitiation, the help of atonement, it is not yours if you have not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus helps those who are in him. So we can say, if we are in Christ, if God is for me, who can be against me? The Lord is with me. That is for those who are in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, friend, you should be fearful of separation from God and turn and look to the spotless Lamb of God who made propitiation for you and put faith and trust in him, as our brother Brandon did, by God's grace, and is testifying this morning. It was not his own goodness that saved him, but the goodness of Jesus. So it means this. It means this. If Jesus has taken this away, okay, how does this help me? How does Jesus help me? All we've talked about. Number one, forgiveness is yours. Forgiveness is yours if you are in Christ. The penalty of your sin has been paid for. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ, you're condemned, rightfully so. But if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wake up and say amen. Somebody, please. All right, there is no condemnation. So when the enemy comes with his accusations against you saying, 
Jesus really did not pay for it all. You say, no, he did. He took the penalty, and he came back to life, by the way, because he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he offers that to all who are in Christ. So the penalty of sin has been paid for. Forgiveness is yours. Listen, friend, you cannot justify yourself. It cannot be added to. If God, if you're a Christian, get this, if you're a believer and you've accepted the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf, God would be going, it is not possible, let me back up, God, it is not possible for you to be able to justify yourself. You can't do that, right? And I could tell you how measly your attempts are. It's just filthy rags, and that would be right. But also, understand this, if you've accepted Christ and you are in him, his perfect work is enough because if he were to accept any goodness from you to add to the cross, to justify yourself, he would be going against his nature, right? Why? Because God is a just God, and he put all the penalty of your sin on Jesus. So he can't accept your your measly self-justification. He can't accept it, and he won't accept it because he is perfectly just. He's not going to judge again what he has already forgiven, in the atonement. So stop trying. That's the point there. Stop trying because your efforts to appease a holy God and your self-justification are just measly, meaningless, and nothing. And in fact, a blaspheme to him and his perfect work. And he can't accept it anyway. It's like, I can't take it. I can't take it. So stop. Victory is yours, number two. Forgiven, penalty of sin paid for, power of sin broken. Victory is yours. Power over your sin belongs to you now. Jesus gives us resurrection power, the power to walk in newness of life. This is how he helps us face temptation. He faced it, and he overcame it, and he has given you the same power. He is imputed to you his righteousness. I told this story before when I ran the Air Force Half Marathon. I ran it. I finished it, I got a victor's medal. And I gave it to my youngest three-year-old, Abram. And he walked around everywhere acting as if he had run the race. But when I was running the race, he was asleep, and when I crossed the finish line, he was picking his nose. (laughs) I did the work, why are you strutting around as if you ran the race? He's walking up to other people and showing them his medal. See, all right? This is a picture of imputed righteousness because Jesus paid the penalty, and he overcame the power. He's broken the power of sin. And the way that we can walk in the of life is because he has imputed into us, given us his righteousness. It's not that just Jesus runs alongside us. Hey, you're doing a good job. Let me just kind of make up where you haven't done perfect. No, he gives all of it. Abe didn't run the race. I did. And yet I gave him the victor's medal. And furthermore, Pastor Russ was talking about this recently, as it pertains to our standing before God, We didn't run the race, but Jesus did and gave us the medal. And not only do we get the medal, but we get the same honor. We get the same honor. It would be like me walking around saying, this three-year-old ran the race. Like he gets the same honor as I do. And interacting with Abram as if he had really run. Because when you are in Christ, and God through Christ has imputed to you his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, merciful, faithful, high priest, God does not interact with you any longer on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what his son has done. You have it. You're an heir with Christ. It belongs to you now. And here's the key. So go live like it. Go live like it. It has been given to you to walk in newness of life. And this is why we can say along with John, 
greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't have to fear death. I don't, I don't have to give in to temptation. I don't have to look to these things to bring meaning to my life. No. Now, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We get the righteousness of Christ. Last point. So, forgiveness is yours. Victory is yours. Future glory is yours as well. Future glory is yours as well. Romans 8, 18, for I consider the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed to us. Because Jesus defeated death, we can live in light of eternity. When this perishable puts on imperishable, 1 Corinthians says, and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Or death, where is your victory? Or death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For the Christian, this means that life does not end here. And it means that everything we do now is done in light of future glory. It means that the things that we do now for the glory of God will last for eternity. Done for the glory of God, they will last for eternity. And so, friend, if you are spending your life trying to find fulfillment and significance in the things that you can do in this world so that they can put on your tombstone, he did such and such, and you can remember in the books of history, if you did it for God's glory, awesome, it will last for eternity. But if you do it for yourself and to find some significance in this world, it will burn up before the glory of God and his holiness and mean nothing whatsoever. The saying has rightly been said, one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for God's glory will last. This means that you could be a, a rocket scientist or you could find some kind of cure for humanity, but if you've done it for your own self-justification, you've done it for your own self-glory, ultimately it will mean nothing. And this means also that if we are children of God, children of the great high priest, he has made us priests who are offering spiritual, spiritual sacrifices to God. This means that it gives significance to being a mother in a culture that says it's not cool to be a mother and you need to go out and you need to become, you know, whatever. It gives significance to washing pots and changing dirty diapers, making meals and creating life and community because it's done for the glory of God. It means that there is significance in preaching sermons and significance in coming early to set out the elements or to make coffee for the good of God and others. It gives significance to our life. Therefore, don't become weary in well-doing because it matters. Why? Because our life does not end here. Why? Because Jesus defeated death. Your labor is not in vain. So Jesus helps those who are in slavery to the fear of death because he destroyed the power of death by becoming a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is our helper. What a friend we have in Jesus. His name that calms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. Well, appropriately was it said by the angels when they came to the shepherds, fear not. Emmanuel has come. I am bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as I leave you, I want to make sure that I emphasize this, that the, that the Jesus helps his own. He gives help to his own. And this help, I don't want you to have this, I want you to see that he sympathizes with you and he loves you. He's there with you. But the help of Jesus that he gives you here in his victory over death and what the author of Hebrews is saying is much less of this kind of help. Like Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, boo, like you're doing real great. 
I know, you, you know you're really screwing up as a dad, or you know, I know you're really walking in some sin, but hey, I forgive you. Like, let's just have a little break, and everything's going to be fine, right? That's not what Jesus, that's not what it means when he says he's come to help us, right? He comes to us in our sorry state. He comes to us in the muck, in the mire, and he gets down in it, but he pulls us out of it. And what does the psalmist say? He sets our feet upon a solid place, upon a rock. You will see in the Gospels, Jesus is always calling for action. Hey, take up your bed and walk. He didn't just sit down next to him and say, let's just chill here for a while. No, he understands the pain and it breaks his heart. It says he looked under the fields and saw they were white to harvest. He looked and had compassion, but he called people to action. Jesus will meet you where you're at, friend, but he will not leave you where you're, where you're at. He will bring you on in sanctification and newness of life. So please don't, don't think, oh, Jesus is just going to help me in my sin. No. No, he's not a refuge for your sin. No, he is giving you resurrection power. Now go and walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Hebrews 6, 19 says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this sure and steadfast anchor that Jesus Christ has been merciful. He understands, he knows but he has been faithful, and he has given us the ability to overcome. We do not have to fear death or anything that we face in this life. We can walk in newness of life. Father, we thank you for what you've taught us today. Thank you that when Satan buffets or trials come, that we have this assurance that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So therefore, we can say, it is well. It is well with my soul. What will I fear? What can man do to me? Jesus has given me help. So take your word now and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.